0: Have I ever been embarrassed by some of the things I've done in the past? Oh, no doubt. Uh, You know, one early version of my book, The Coaching Habit, I started every chapter with an embarrassing story. I had so many stories to draw upon. You know, I'm glad my editor told me to drop that version. It wasn't nearly as entertaining as I thought it was. Now, have I ever been ashamed of the things I've done? Well, that's true as well. I can point to some things that I am ashamed about. I'm not going to tell stories about that because I'm ashamed of it. Um, you know, those harder to reframe as positive, they cut a little deeper. But have I ever felt ashamed of just me, just me for being me, of not fitting in because of some unlucky so-called role of the DNA dice? Well, no, I haven't. And gosh, what a privilege that turns out to be. Welcome to Two Pages with MVS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. My guest today is Julie Lithcott Haim. She is a speaker, an activist, and an author. Her new book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, which quite frankly. Feels like a topic helpful for anyone between the ages of, well, 16 and 116. Now, Julie knows what it means to not fit in.
1: I'm a 53-year-old black, biracial, cisgendered woman. Um, I'm in a heterosexual marriage to a cisgendered man. We both identify, however, as queer and bisexual. We've been together for 33 years.
0: Julie says she's been transgressive since she arrived on this planet. Born to a black American man and a white British woman
1: who dared to not only love one another, but to marry and to have a child. And I got the message as a very young child, Michael, that something was wrong with my parents' marriage, that something was wrong with my black daddy, and that something was wrong with me. Those messages began to bore into my psyche at about age four certainly by age seven. I'm talking about how strangers regarded us. I'm talking about the questions I would get from classmates and neighbors and teachers and strangers. For all her life, Julie has been
0: otherized. She didn't fit in anywhere really, especially as a biracial child in a middle-class white neighborhood.
1: I was born into liminal spaces. Classification schemes did not contemplate me positively. And so I have a lot, I have a big heart for humans who, for whatever reason, for whatever aspect of their identity or identities, have been made to feel like, hey, you're not good enough. You don't belong here. We don't like you. Change yourself, fix yourself, be different.
0: My guess is when your very existence is a transgression to the world around you, you can go one of two different
1: ways you can rebel or you can conform. For me, it pushed me toward the center, toward Mm. conformity. I can tell you now with great clarity at 53, having done the work to unpack and analyze and assess and even write memoir about this, that I was simply trying to be good enough in the eyes of white society. My parents chose to raise me in largely white spaces. This was Mm. my father coming up out of the Jim Crow South in America, Having been ostracized, otherized, beaten down, he was determined to get up and out, be the physician he wanted to be, and not be held back by other people's racism, which meant he wanted the big house in the nice town. And typically, that meant an almost entirely white space. Mm. And he delighted in the fact that the realtor didn't realize she had just sold the house (laughs) to a white woman and her Black husband. That's who my father was. That was what was right and real for him. Mm. What that meant was I was this light-skinned, fuzzy-headed child in the 1970s and early 80s who people just regarded as an oddity, as exotic. They wanted to touch my hair. And I just wanted to please them. I wanted to not be different. I wanted to be like them. I wanted my hair to be straight like the white girls. Mm. I wanted to meet their approval. And when bad things started to happen, like the N-word being written on my locker in high school on my 17th birthday, I just wanted to never be called the N-word again, which clearly, in my mind at least, required conformity to their norms to their ways of being and really in a sense I was believing the stereotypes about black people and just desperately trying not to be the stereotype
0: of course and at that kind of movement to conformity and wanting to be part of the the crowd what are the what were the prizes and the punishments of that for you
1: I'm really aware as we have this conversation that many kids choose the opposite. They choose to rebel. I didn't right. articulate my um, rebelliousness until I was fully an adult, mm. uh, with a, a few moments of of rebelliousness in, in my teenage years, but not really around this sort of racial belonging. Um, so the 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 prizes were belonging. Yeah, I was told this is what they told me, Michael. They said. Um, my, my best friend was watching Gone with the Wind when I came over to her house. And if listeners don't know, right. that's a movie about the antebellum South, the South during the Civil War. And it's the South is portrayed as this elegant place with mm-hmm. these beautiful outfits and you know slaves. and <laughs>
0: Exactly. Beautiful outfits and slaves. Right? And slaves.
1: <laughs> my white best friend loved this movie. And she couldn't understand why I didn't love it. Yeah. And I said, well, I would have been a – she said, wouldn't you have loved to have lived back then? Yeah. This was a white girl just longing for the, for the chivalry, longing for the dresses and not seeing the slavery or yeah. not caring about the slavery. And so she'd say, wouldn't it have been great to have lived back then? And I said, no. Yeah. She said, why not? And I said, because I would have been a slave. And I said that with such shame in my voice. Mm. And she said, oh, but I mean, if you weren't black. <laughs> and I said, but I am oh, black. Yeah. And she said, I don't think of you as black. I think of you as normal. So she thought she was offering me a compliment. Right. Okay, that was the prize offered.
0: Mm.
1: But it's it's wasn't a prize, okay? Right. It was as I began to see that they don't actually know the fullness of who I am. They're saying you are different enough from the stereotype that we regard you as normal enough. Mm like us. So I think the prizes were always punishments. I I'm not sure. I think it was always both.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This stuff is entangled. It's tricky there's that kind of acceptance and welcoming into it at the cost of trading off your identity. Yeah, you're not black, you're but you're normal. It was like right. the, the a high price for that that prize so to speak. Yeah. Julie, will you tell us about the book you've chosen for us today?
1: Absolutely, it's Educated, a memoir mm. by Tara Westover.
0: This is a great book and an amazing yeah. story. Um, yeah, how did it come into your life? Where did you discover it?
1: Oh my gosh, who couldn't discover it? <laughs> I know book it's everywhere. Is being talked about everywhere and. I'm a busy person, you know, writers read, of course, but I'm often reading what I'm asked to read. Someone Mm. wants me to blurb their book. I've got a stack of maybe three, four books I seem to be needing to blurb at all times. And so I'm rarely doing volitional, you know, pleasure reading. Let's put it that way. I'm often... I'm reading a ton, but it's often work related. So I'd been hearing about this book and wondering what's the big deal. And then finally, I went to a local fundraiser for affordable housing in my neck of the woods, which is Silicon Valley, San Francisco Bay Area, California, USA. And it was a breakfast fundraiser. And lo and behold, Tara Westover was the keynote speaker. Mm. And I thought, what is she doing speaking at this event? What does her story have to do with affordable housing or supporting people who've been marginalized or historically ex- excluded or oppressed? Well, right. <laughs> I only had that question in my head for about a minute and a half as she spoke. I, I began to appreciate what her story was about, and I went out that day and bought her book. Mm.
0: There's a there's a lot of there's a lot in this book. I'm curious to know how you chose the two pages you're going to read for us.
1: I'm interested in the extent so big picture I'm in, I'm interested in helping humans on their path. Right. I root for humans. I'm interested in the human journey. I'm interested in what gets in our way, whether it's an obstacle that is external to us, yeah, someone else's racism for example, mm-hmm. um or internal, something um that is within us we are essentially in our own way. And I've certainly done the work to rid myself of the internalized shame or internalized oppression, we might say, yep. or the implicit bias within myself toward my own people. Um, society taught me to loathe myself, right. and I did. And I've done the work to emerge from that self-loathing and claim a place of self-love as a Black woman. And... Um, I am deeply drawn to stories where people come to terms with what they've been through, right. dare to speak it out loud to somebody, <laughs> yeah. and then they discover the shame has been dislodged and no longer lives inside of them. And there's just a few pages toward um, the back fifth of her book where she mm. begins to emerge. She begins to tell the truth of what happened to her in childhood to her parents. and. Yeah. um she unburdens herself, not completely, but that there's a big stone that gets dislodged, and you can feel it.
0: Well, I'm very much looking forward to hearing this uh, being read. So, Julie, over to you.
1: Thank you, Michael. So, this is Educated by Tara Westover, and I'm going to read from pages 272 and 273. And the setup is she has had a lot go badly in her in her childhood which was off the grid. And she had siblings, one of whom was very physically violent toward her. And nobody seemed to know or care if they did know. And she finally in her young adulthood tells her mother Mm. what happened. So I'm reading from after she has had that conversation with her mother, which resulted in her mother. And it was an email conversation resulted in her mother writing, you were my child. I should have protected you. Mother and I spoke only once about that conversation, on the phone, a week later. It's being dealt with, she said. I told your father what you and your sister said. Sean will get help. I put the issue from my mind. My mother had taken up the cause. She was strong. She had built that business with all those people working for her, and it dwarfed my father's business and all the other businesses in the whole town. She, that docile woman, had a power in her the rest of us couldn't contemplate. And Dad, he had changed. He was softer, more prone to laugh. The future could be different from the past. Even the past could be different from the past, because my memories could change. I no longer remembered Mother listening in the kitchen while Sean pinned me to the floor, pressing my windpipe. I no longer remembered her looking away. My life in Cambridge was transformed, or rather I was transformed into someone who believed she belonged in Cambridge. The shame I'd long felt about my family leaked out of me almost overnight. For the first time in my life, I talked openly about where I'd come from. I admitted to my friends that I'd never been to school. I described Buck's Peak with its many junkyards, barns, corrals. I even told them about the root cellar full of supplies in the wheat field and the gasoline buried near the old barn. I told them I'd been poor. I told them I'd been ignorant. And in telling them this, I felt not the slightest prick of shame. Only then did I understand where the shame had come from. It wasn't that I hadn't studied in a marble conservatory or that my father wasn't a diplomat. It wasn't that dad was half out of his mind or that mother followed him. It had come from having a father who shoved me toward the chomping blades of the shear instead of pulling me away from them. It had come from those moments on the floor, from knowing that mother was in the next room, closing her eyes and ears to me and choosing for that moment not to be my mother at all. I fashioned a new history for myself. I became a popular dinner guest with my stories of hunting and horses, of scrapping and fighting mountain fires, of my brilliant mother, midwife and entrepreneur, of my eccentric father, junk man and zealot. I thought I was finally being honest about the life I'd had before. It wasn't the truth exactly, but it was true in a larger sense, true to what would be in the future, now that everything had changed for the better, now that mother had found her strength. The past was a ghost, insubstantial, unaffecting. Only the future had weight.
0: Thanks, Julie. You read beautifully. So uh, thanks for bringing those two pages to life like that. Um, Thank you. Was there something in particular about those two pages that struck a chord for you?
1: Well, I too had my own unburdening moment Mm. at 39 after um, two decades, two and a half decades of trying to please white folks, meet with their approval, not be discarded, scorned, um, mistreated. I was working with an executive coach at Stanford, uh, around how to get along better with my colleagues. I was a very senior person by this point. I'd gotten my bachelor's degree. I'd gotten my law degree. I had practiced law for four years. Unlike you, we'll talk about (laughs) it. Um, and, uh, now I'm a Dean at Stanford, a career, uh, I'll be a university administrator for 14 years. And this is sort of in year nine, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I'm working with an executive coach. Who's helping me work my shit out, and she's working with my whole team, the people at my level, and t- the guy we report to, and she gives me feedback that I am too emotional and too aggressive, according to my colleagues, who are all mm-hmm. white and all have PhDs, and I'm the I'm the youngest, so I'm the wrong the wrong degree because I only have a JD, which <laughs> right. in academia it's is just not wrong, right. You're
0: just wrong all around, Julie. You're a wrong, woman. You're black. You don't have a PhD. You're exactly. just not teaching and I'm the boxes. The
1: the on yeah. the youngest and the feedback she's gotten from this 360 and my coach, Mary Ellen is my coach to this day. She's amazing. She said, you know, they think you're emotional and ag- too emotional and too aggressive. And I was like, wow, that's original. That's mm. those are stereotypes of black women. Mm-hmm. And she chuckled and she's like, I'm not here for the stereotype. I'm here to know if your way of being is getting you what you want. Cause I'm here to help you thrive. And I had to admit to her that when I was a lawyer being argumentative, being emotional, um, was currency. It was a way to make argument. It was a way to persuade. It was a way to win, but in academia, which is highly collegial and collaborative, it was not winning anything for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I admitted to her that, okay, fine. I want to learn why I'm this way. Yes. Sometimes I'm too emotional. Sometimes I'm too aggressive. And she taught me mindfulness. She taught me the practice of scanning my body and what it was doing in response to what I was observing and hearing. She taught me to scan my mind. She taught me to put a pause on impulses and reflexes Mm. so that I could decide, is this something I would like to respond to? If so, now or later? If now, what do I want to say? It allowed me to gain control over my way of showing up. It wasn't about censorship. It was about sharpening my capacity to communicate in ways that would ultimately serve my aims. And in the process of doing this, Michael, and I know this is maybe a longer answer than you thought you were going to get, but I really <laughs> wanted you to hear the backstory yeah. to this, which is trusting this coach mm. as I did. I was able, we were focusing on. So where does the emotion come from? You've learning, you're learning to slow it down and decide whether to respond or not and how. But where are these triggers right. that are triggering the emotion coming from? And I was able to say to her that I had been ashamed to be black
0: Mm.
1: and afraid of black people and just trying to be what white people valued. And I said this to her because what was happening was the triggers were, you're not smart enough. I perceived people were dismissing me on the basis of my blackness. So I had to go to, why do I feel that way? Well, I feel that way because childhood, childhood, childhood. And I unburdened myself of this shame of, I was afraid of being, I hated being black, afraid of black people, trying to be what white people valued. And I'm saying this, Michael, through tears Tears and snot is running out of my (laughs) nose. And I'm, you know, and I'm so ashamed because I feel, Michael, that I'm the only human who's ever felt this way. Mm. Because I've not read a memoir about that, I've not (laughs) read a novel about that. I don't know these truths from anyone else's life story. And I discover that in unburdening myself, that those thoughts were dislodged, that I had spoken into the shame. And it was as if a bully, the racism bully had been chasing me all my life, always there around the corner, ready to chase me. Just, I was running from it. And I, it was, this process was the equivalent of turning around, facing the bully with my hands on my hips Mm -hmm. to say, this is what you have made me feel about myself and my people. Yeah. And just naming it. Made the bully run away. Wow. And, and I was filled with a sense of self love that is the most beautiful, beautiful feeling. And I went to work the next day and it was as if every Black person <laughs> on the Stanford campus had gotten a memo saying, Would you smile at Julie today? <sighs> oh, because so they were all smiling at me. And of course, they weren't all smiling or they were smiling, but they hadn't yeah. gotten a memo. And I think the answer or the rationale here, the way to make any sense of this is simply to say, I was finally smiling at myself. Yeah in the fullness of my identity. I could Mm. see myself and love that self. Therefore I could see and love black people. And, um, it was a life changing experience. And so that's why I resonated with what Tara Westover was writing. She (laughs) was, she was able to be the fullness of herself. And I thought she described, I mean, I chose it because I could relate in my own way, but also because you know i chose this book broadly because she writes so exquisitely about she does. the details of family life and the details of our emotional suffering and longing and all of those things so i thought it was just an exquisite combination both in the craft yeah. of it and in the subject matter
0: what a what a moment of of freedom to have just yeah. come to you like that it's extraordinary Julie, your your new book is called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And I'm wondering what the connection is between that moment of you, as you say, um, stepping into the fullness of your identity and what you talk about in this new book of yours.
1: Yeah. um, It's deeply connected. I am so interested in each one of us unburdening ourselves From the shame installed in us by the opinions of others, number one. Mm. I'm interested in us making our way toward work that we're good at and we love. Mm. Because I know I was headed toward work that mattered to other people, corporate law. But it wasn't why I went to law school. I went to law school to help people, so I was miserable. Um, I'm interested in us ridding our minds of the expectations of others about whom we should be. Um, I'm interested in us making our way not just toward work that we love and are good at, but toward communities right. and to be in relationships where we can simply be cherished As we are. So this is a book about adulting, a stage of life you enter if you survive childhood. Spoiler (laughs) alert, it's not a mysterious place. It's really a state of mind. Right. This is my life. I get to decide. And yeah, it's going to be hard. And yeah, there are going to be challenges and setbacks and pitfalls because that's what life entails and includes, but also I can be in charge, I can choose, I have choice. I am not someone else's property. I am not here to be someone else's stereotype. Um, I really like to quote the late poet, Mary Oliver, Mm. who asked in one of her poems, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Such a line. Michael, I do believe it's wild and I do believe it's precious. And I do believe it's ours. And so that um, line from Mary Oliver animates these 459 pages of
0: my new book. I love that. You know, one of the chapters is stop pleasing others. And it's a little different from stepping into the fullness of your identity. I mean, that question your coach asked you, which is like, so is this way of behaving, getting you what you want? Is that actually making you happy? And you're like, well, actually, maybe not totally. Um, so there's this moment of self acceptance for who you are in your kind of messy glory, um, yeah. but the idea of stop pleasing others is difficult. Um, you know, there's so much around us that says, you know, behave and fit into your place, and you know, kiss up and kick down. Exaggerating <laughs> slightly, but um, it's a it's a radical act to decide not to please others and to get clear on what you want for yourself. How do you help? people make that shift because you've seen lots of young people walking this path
1: part of it michael is age and stage Mm -hmm. when we're young we're seeking conformity peer pressure is a very real and valid thing we as a matter of safety going back in our in our ancestry as homo sapiens we have needed to know our group you know the in group and the out group that's very ingrained and when we're teenagers and young adults, we're very interested in, in, typically we're interested in what What are our peers doing and let me be like them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's valid. But the older we get, um, the more we have life experiences that teach us, hey, wait a minute, I did the air quotes right thing. I met the air quotes right person. I went to the air quotes right school. I'm in the right. air quotes right profession. And we discover there's nothing right about it at all. If I'm actually (laughs) listening to my body, my hair is falling out. I have high blood pressure. I feel terribly afraid. I feel uncomfortable. I feel a longing for a life that I can envision myself having Mm. that is right over there. If I could just find the guts to say, you know what, what would I do if it was just up to me? I would do that. So many of us have experienced that. And the older we get, the more self-reliant we are, the more financially independent we are, the more, um, evidence we have that, you know what I can, I am okay being myself. So part of it is age and stage. Um, what I try to do in the book is share my own narrative about some of my struggles in this regard. And, um, The book is also filled with the stories of 31 other humans who come from myriad walks of life, diversity in every way we can think of it. And I'm trying to say, look, 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 at, listen to all of these other people who may be nothing like you. And yet, look what we all have in common, this yearning um, to be ourselves and to know we're okay. So um, I try to tell good stories to help convince young people that it's delicious To Stop Pleasing Others, the subtitle of that chapter is They Have No Idea Who You Are. It's an invitation to know yourself. And I put other stories in there so readers can listen to what it sounds like when someone has crossed that line. I'm hoping that other people's stories, including my own, will help pull readers through the stuckedness that they may be experiencing in their own lives.
0: I mean, I love that subtitle, They Have No Idea Who You Are, because for me, it it has a double meaning. The first is, you know, they don't know you. They actually don't know who you are and the, and the nuances, who, what makes up. They're, they don't even really know what you want. Um, but even more profound for me is they probably don't even know who you actually are. <laughs> like, there's this great quote, and you probably know it, Julia, which is like, I you know, I used to w- worry what people thought of me, and then I realized people don't think of me. <laughs> They're too busy thinking right. of themselves and all the other stuff going on in their life to spend any right. real time worrying about me so yeah, you've got some freedom to to shape shape your path, shape your destiny.
1: Yeah, I love that quote. And the people I have in mind when I say stop pleasing others, they have no idea who you are. Yeah. Are the people in the lives of yeah, young people in the US and Canada and Australia and plenty of other countries. Today and yep. over the last 20 years, where parenting has become hyper parenting, yep. where parents are saying, You will be a this, you will do that, we will help and handle it and make it happen for you. Mm-hmm. There is so much noise in the heads of young people around, You should study this, you should be a this, we expect you to do this. You're so good at this. This is the insidiousness right. when parents say, I know you better than you know yourself. I just, that makes me want to vomit. <laughs> like no you do not yeah. know your child better because you are not in their interior mind and if you are so wrapped up in their life such that they don't even know their own voice mm-hmm. that is highly problematic that warrants good therapy yeah so that these two beings can disengage so that this younger one can actually begin listening to that self and honoring what it says julie how do you
0: find your own voice because you know the story you tell of that moment with your coach feels extraordinary in that it was you know in a single bound she was free you know in a in a single moment it feels like from your story you you were able to bring that shame out and be free of it I I don't hear that story that often (laughs) it's a it feels like that's a rarer thing than a more common thing when you've got young kids and all of us who have so many things pulling us this way and that way, whether it's from our parents, helicopter parenting, as you talk about in your TED talk, or the pressure of social media or whatever else, finding your own voice so hard. How, how do you help people with that?
1: A couple thoughts come to mind. First, we often are willing to acknowledge we have a voice telling us to do something else mm-hmm. when we're miserable. That's true. So I was that miserable young corporate lawyer. I had, quote unquote, done everything right. I had gotten a job with a law firm in Silicon Valley doing intellectual property litigation when the internet was becoming a thing. Very exciting time for copyright, trademark, and patents if you cared about those things. But I had gone to law school to help people, to protect people, not to protect intellectual property. And though I was good at it, they told me I was good at it. I was mentored. I was given opportunity. The people I worked with were kind and smart. The paycheck was great. My body was telling me, we are desperately unhappy in here. Mm. I had high blood pressure. I had a knot in my, I had high blood pressure only at work. My doctor made me check it five times a day. I had a knot in my stomach every Sunday at two at the thought of going back on Monday. I was talking to a friend who left Wall Street, Christine Coe. She said, Julia, I only left Wall Street when my hair was falling out. Wow. It was like the evidence. I could mm. show people, look, I'm losing my hair. <laughs> when we're miserable, yeah. we feel now I have proof that this isn't okay yeah. or that I can't handle it. Whatever the it is, you know, I, I, I have evidence. Mm. Our own feelings often don't feel to us to be substantial proof. Right. But when the body is starting to break down, we're like, okay. So I'm here saying, don't wait for your hair to fall out. Right. Don't wait for the knot in your stomach or the high blood pressure. Yeah. Where do you find your inner voice, Michael? So I, So one answer is when you're miserable, you're often willing to say, okay, fine. fine. This sucks. What do I really want to do? <laughs> okay. But short of the, like, let's, many steps before Hopefully. the body is yeah. breaking down. Now, available to each one of us here in this conversation, listening speaking we can say to ourselves what would i do if it was just up to me right what would i do if no one else was watching what would i do if it didn't matter to anybody else what i did what would i do if they loved me no matter what i did mm-hmm. these questions help jostle us out of that well i'm supposed to i ought to i should yeah. people like me my family it's just it frees you up it's a brainstorm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just you, you know, p- imposing upon your mind a little brainstorm activity that is just about you and answers will come. And this is when my students would say, "Well, I'd go be a wilderness naturalist." But who does that? And right. I would just be silent and I'd look <laughs> at them and I'd say, "People do that." Yeah. "Why not you?" "Well, I can't. I got a major in econ." "Why?" "Well, because uh, and then we get into the odds and shoulds." Yeah, yeah. And so I always thought I've been thought you know, the students were often majoring in what they thought they should major in and minoring in their joy. And I often saw it as my job to elevate the status of the minor because that was evidence of what the inner voice I love that. really wanted to do.
0: So, Julie, I I love your insight about that kind of visceral, somatic wisdom, the wisdom of the body, um, in part because it's something i I'm a bit of a head intellectual guy, so I'm trying really hard to try and notice what my body is telling me. How do you navigate around? I'm not sure if this is the right language, but let's call it false positives. So, here's my hypothesis, and you can tell me if I've got parts of it wrong. I may have that part of being raised as a young person with a helicopter parent is that you do become a bit fragile and a bit precious, and a bit, this is too hard. I don't want to do this. I only want to do the things that I can get A's in or succeed in or get the medal for. And therefore, there's a bunch of things that feel hard. Um, and I don't want to do them. I'm wondering how you you notice what's h- hard but powerful. I mean, one of my mantras at the moment is we unlock our greatness by taking on the hard things versus we get crushed by taking on something that is hard and miserable. Hmm.
1: I love that. I'm not sure. I'm trying to visualize everything you've just said and square it against everything I've studied and write about. Mm. And here's what's coming. Yeah. Often the helicopters, often the helicoptered kids are doing very hard things. Number one, often what they're asked to do is incredibly hard. It's just what's problematic is it's someone else's life plan Mm. for them. So they may be quite good at hard things. Yeah. Um, they're just doing the wrong hard things, wrong right. in the sense of it's not what they would choose. Some of them are definitely being overhelped. So there's one type of helicopter parenting that's telling you you have to be a right. tennis star or brain surgeon, and that's hard stuff. Another type of helicopter parenting is the concierge, helper, handler, fixer, who will turn in things for you and make sure your deadlines are met and and have the tough conversations for you and certainly somebody raised that way can be met with well wow, life as it turns out is so much harder edgier uh, <laughs> right. than i'd ever been led to believe because i've been overhandled and those young people are sort of like veal out there in young adult land yeah um and and <laughs> And, and i think you're right that some of them may be turning away from the hard things that would liberate them or have mm. you know help them sort of i forget the quote but blossom yeah. and become um and may not know what's hard and actual misery versus um hard and worth it yeah um yeah what a lovely question
0: yeah it's it's, it's tricky it's 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 messy and complex and i'm i'm quite happily child free so I don't actually have to deal with this I get to watch my brothers though raising their kids and they're all yeah. they're teenagers and they're they're trying to navigate that which is you know how much do I let them find their own path and allow extracurricular to be part of the the magic that shapes them how much do I try and nudge them to get them across certain finish lines and um, you know I see both my brothers and their their partners wrestling with that and I see the kids wrestling with it as well. And I'm like, that'll Yeah. <laughs> good luck.
1: Yeah. But I think what it speaks to is kids need to leave our homes knowing how to work hard. Mm. They need to be given expectations that are high and that they meet. Right. Not arbitrary. You must be, uh, everyone in our family plays the piano, therefore you have to play the piano. Yeah. But whatever it is you, you love and you're good at, and I always speak to those two circles and the, the the venn diagram overlap that's where the rewarding work is the yeah. overlap of what you're good at and you love you know helping your kid figure out okay of these options what really lights you up you know and we want to encourage you to lean into the things that matter to you, and to go for mastery, and to go for excellence, mm. and and all of that, and to work hard, and to pick yourself up when when you fail, because you will fail. We all do. Your right. p- other parent and I have, and <laughs> and we want you to know how to learn from those things and right. bounce back. So they need to have. We need to have expectations. We should just not be acting like they're little dogs on a leash that we've entered into a very elite dog <laughs> show, where at the end of the day, we go home with a trophy and we right. feel proud of us for what this dog slash child did.
0: Uh, Julian, on your website, you describe yourself as an author, a speaker, and an activist. Tell me about being an activist.
1: Um. I think it goes back to my my parents are both quite active in the causes they believe in. They were in my childhood. I was a, a delegate, not a delegate. I, um, I showed up at the 1984 Democratic um, Caucus in Wisconsin right. in the room for Jesse Jackson, who was a black man running mm-hmm. for president, which was audacious in the minds of many in 1984. I was 16. I loved standing up for something I believed in and sharing what I thought, even though this is the transgressive slash rebellious piece, right? right. Nobody thought Jesse could win, but I was there anyway to say his candidacy matters. Right. Representation matters is what we would say today. Um, yeah. I um, I was in college when apartheid was still the law of the land in South Africa and college students across the country, including on my campus, were uh, protesting against it. I... I participated in marches. I went to my state capital, Sacramento, to lobby for more funding for public schools. I, um, you know, I've registered people to vote, and I've I've I became an Obama delegate Mm -hmm. uh, to the convention in 2008, representing my part of California. I went to the border um, last summer, two summers ago. I went to the border, the Texas border, at Clint and El Paso because for a year I'd been wringing my hands over what's happening with migrant kids being separated from their parents. And finally I said, God damn it, Julie, you're self-employed. Tell yourself you're going to (laughs) take some days off work and drive your freaking Jeep Wrangler from California to Texas and go stand up for those kids. And I did. And I took people with me and we generated media attention of some kind. And, you know, I just, I'm willing to stand on street corners. I'm willing to stand up for what matters. I'm right. willing, certainly around Black lives. Um, I have, you know, shown up at rallies and marches and um, I have always spoken my mind, Michael. Yeah. And often I've been told it's too much but I think when you're in the realm of when you're on a street corner or you're marching down a street, it doesn't matter what other people think you have mm. decided I need to speak up. I am going to use my body and my voice and my presence and these moments in my life to try to push this, you know, gear, Yeah. this particular gear that is stuck to use myself to push it forward and get it unstuck.
0: You. Yeah, I think I saw somewhere else on your website about helping a, a, a broader commitment you have in your life around helping people move from fear to love. And it feels that mm. like that's true around parenting and around adulting and around activism. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering what you think keeps us stuck in fear.
1: Well, if love is the opposite of fear, I'm not sure it is, but let's go there. Mm-hmm. We are afraid we might not be loved. Right. We are afraid we might extend our hand or make an effort and be rejected. We are afraid we will be unheard and unseen. Somehow the fear gives us strength. It gives us anger. Anger sits on top of fear. It gives us a way of being. We can we can define a set of boundaries and keep ourselves there. Love is about freedom. It is about possibility. It's about risk-taking. Right. It's about being open. And we don't want to be rejected. We do not want to be rejected. We'd Mm. rather erect all of these barriers so that nobody can get in and actually hurt us by not loving us, by not accepting us.
0: You know, it's that great tension of life, which is between finding our own voice and finding our authentic self and wanting to conform and be part of the crowd. And we're kind of pulled endlessly between those two poles, I feel, you know, I certainly feel that myself, which is like, look, part of, I think, finding an authentic voice and taking a stand on things can mean loneliness. Um, but part of being part of the crowd means boredom. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, neither of those are a perfect choice. So how do I find, how, how do I navigate my way between them?
1: Well, you find the right crowd, I guess, but I totally right. agree with you. I, As I have gotten clearer um, about what I cannot tolerate or abide as a Black woman in America, and I have dared to speak up, I have faced rejection. Yep. And I have decided the pain of staying in those spaces is is an over time a numbing of my spirit. Mm. So I can sit in a discussion group as one of the as the only or one of a handful of women of color and listen to the droning on of opinions that fly in the face of of respect and dignity and kindness toward marginalized people and I can sit there I can speak up and I can continue to speak up but I can ultimately decide I'm going to leave because I'm not getting anywhere and to be here is eroding my spirit. Mm. Or I can decide, I love these people. I really want to help these people um, try to understand a different point of view. I'm going to stay. Um, I have discovered when I leave, so for most of my life, I decided to stay and I was yeah. sort of the token black person. And I've decided, nope, my self-care, my choice is to find groups mm. who cherish me for me and who have individuals I can cherish. Yeah. Um, maybe it's smaller groups. Maybe my world is shrinking, but it is becoming... More of a place where I feel I can thrive. I'm not closing myself off from people I disagree with. There's plenty of people I disagree with with whom I interact, but where I choose to spend my social life, yeah. the organizations I choose to give my time to, I'm just—I'm really clear that um, that maybe a bit of loneliness is the price for the integrity. Yeah, I don't want to be in a group of people that don't. Aren't in anguish when a black child is murdered. I have decided to
0: lonely in a different way. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Or that fewer friends, but deeper connections to those people are probably the greater prize than being in a community with dozens or hundreds, where you know, yeah, those many of those people do not honor the, the things that are fundamental to me.
0: Julie, it's been a wonderful conversation. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you. As a final question, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me?
1: Yeah. This conversation hasn't just been between you and me. Right. We are fortunate in that other humans, unseen, unnamed, have chosen, To spend some precious time with us. So I just want to extend to you gratitude and to them. They've stuck with us for however many minutes this turned (laughs) out to be. They are here right now, listening. And I don't take a minute of that for granted. Mm. They've heard something in our conversation that pulled at them, that tugged at them. They needed it. They wanted it. There's something in them right now that's going, yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Okay. And I'm just here to say, this is my work. I'm interested. I'm interested in their why, I'm interested in what's going on. I try to write about the things that make us feel alone or ashamed. Yeah. And I try to help people feel less alone. So I think there's some people listening, maybe a lot, who feeling a little less alone because of the conversation conversation you chose to have with me.
0: Did you hear that phrase, the fullness of your identity? Now I remember as a kid in the backseat of my parents' car, it's summer, it's hot, it's dusty, and we're coming back from Araluen in New South Wales. Now, in my mind, Araluen grows the best peaches in the world, and the one I was eating was perfect. It was big, perfectly colored, kind of a range of oranges and pinks on the outside, and then Big white flesh biting into it. There's juice everywhere. This peach is as peach as it's possible to be. I would love my existence to be as full of me as that peach was as full of peach. And I don't think this is grasping after evermore and FOMO and the like. It's about figuring yourself out. I mean, that's work. Then backing yourself, finding your people, finding your battles. And finding your joys. You can find out more about Julie at her website, Julie Lithcott Hames. I'll spell that out for you. It's all one word: Julie J U L I E, Lithcott L Y T H C O T T, Hames H A I M S. dot com. And uh, on social, she's at J Lithcott Hames, So. without the Julie bit, Jay lithcott hames on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and even Clubhouse. And um, she's got a series of great books, a great TED talk, but her newest book is, as I said, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. I mean, what a great title. Thanks, of course, for listening to the interview, to the podcast, for spreading the word. If there's somebody for whom this interview would really strike a chord of course i'm very appreciative if you're willing to send it on and and mention it to them i'm very grateful if you've written a review um these reviews as minor as they might feel to you they mean a good deal to me because it's one of the ways the algorithms and the technology gods help make this podcast findable for other people and if you'd like more There is actually a free membership associated with this podcast. It's called The Duke Humphreys, named after my favorite library at Oxford, where all the cool books were kept. And in this free membership, you get transcripts to all the podcasts. You get some unreleased podcasts. There's a list of my 10 favorite books. There's just a bunch of good things there. Totally free, but it's a way of actually gathering the readers of the podcast here together. You're awesome, and you're doing great.